Thank you for those songs, Brandon. Uh, I can tell those songs were very thoughtfully picked out with uh, the scripture reading that I texted the guys. Um, I'm still coughing a little bit today, but I feel a lot better. Um, for some reason, coughing a little more this morning than I've been in mornings recently. But this morning, we're going to be looking at a lesson that I've had on my mind for a few months now at least. Um, I'd actually intended to give this lesson before leaving for Africa, but ended up switching gears to give the lesson that I gave on how David inspired leadership uh, before Eve and I went to Sierra Leone. Um, This is going to be a hard lesson and a very personal one. Um, Personal for me. uh, The things we're going to be looking at in Jeremiah, I feel like, have shaped me in who I am um, in many, many ways and continue to be things that I think a lot about and have been thinking about recently. But I also think personal for the church here. Um, I try to always give lessons that I feel kind of speak to the needs of the group here. And, and some lessons, though, um, feel a little more uh, centered on maybe what a really urgent or great need is in the group right now. And so this is, this is one of those lessons. Um, sometimes we may find ourselves in circumstances where things are more naturally joyful and encouraging. Sometimes we're in a situation where there's just a lot of encouraging things happening. There's a lot of encouraging people around us. Uh, maybe the condition of the church is very encouraging, but that's not always the case. And I think the work in Savannah tends to be um, the latter. Uh, usually when brethren are here, um, it doesn't take too long before they find that being in Savannah is actually quite difficult. <laughs> uh, I find that consistently. I found that myself with Eva, um, that that's, that's just a kind of a consistent thing. And so I'd like to bring up the lesson here this morning with Jeremiah's example in a way that's meant to be very um, impactfully encouraging. Uh, this isn't meant to be a corrective lesson at all. Um, this isn't a corrective lesson for John and Giada moving to Indiana. <laughs> and this isn't meant to be a lesson that's discouraging anyone from moving away somewhere else, you know, to find maybe what, what may be uh, more encouraging circumstances somewhere else. Uh, this isn't, those things are not the point of the lesson. Like I said, I, this lesson's been on my mind for, for months and months now and really meant to give it multiple months ago. Um, and now just now is the time where I feel like it's, I'm able to, to give this lesson. So I want to read James 5, 7 through 11 here uh, to introduce the lesson. This will be the only passage not in Jeremiah we're going to look at. So we're going to be just going through sections of Jeremiah after James 5. Um, but this is kind of the, the purpose of the lesson here. It's something that we're told in Scripture we need to do. Chapter 5 or 7, Therefore be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the soil, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not groan, brothers, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who persevere. So we're literally told in James 5, you know, that if, if we want an example of suffering and patient, patience, look to the prophets. And I think Jeremiah tends to be one of the greatest examples of this. Uh, when I was living in Alabama, at a time in my life when I was really struggling with suffering and patience, 
Um, there were a lot of studies going on that involved Jeremiah. My own personal Bible reading schedules kept hitting on Jeremiah, and then I was assigned to teach Jeremiah. And I found that the, the immersion in Jeremiah at the time of my life radically shifted my perspective of my circumstances. And that's been something I've, I've continued to dwell on since being in Savannah. And, and again, I, I continue to dwell on these things. And so this, this lesson and what we're going to be looking at is not just things I've reflected on, but they're things that continue to challenge me and encourage me and help me a lot. I want you to think with James 5, 7 through 11, uh, the importance of examples. Something that I've seen myself and I feel like I've heard from others again lately on multiple occasions is how impactful it is when you're having like a bad day or you're suffering some kind of hard circumstance. And then you're around someone where you hear them explain their situation. And what they explain is obviously much worse. And sometimes even just the attitude they express in it is humbling because, wow, they're going through something so much worse than me. And somehow they're maintaining such a better attitude. And things like that can be, can be so humbling. And so there's something about someone's example in suffering through hard circumstances that can really put things in perspective. And again, I think that's needed both biblically with what we see in James 5, but as we'll, we'll see from Jeremiah's example, Jeremiah's example is extremely inspiring. I want to go back to Jeremiah chapter 1 now. And again, we're going to spend the rest of our time in Jeremiah. And some of these passages we're going to go through fairly briefly. Um, so be ready to flip your pages around. But I want to start in just chapter 1, and I want to give you some context for just how hard Jeremiah's circumstances were. Jeremiah is, first of all, uh, it's the longest book of the Bible, uh, by far. It doesn't have the most chapters, but it has the most words. And so if you are to list the lengths of books based on their word count, not chapter count, Jeremiah comes out as number one. And I think that is because Jeremiah lived in the most difficult time in Israel's history. Uh, if you read with me verses 1 through 3 here, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of Yahweh came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. And it came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. And when it says the exile of Jerusalem, what that means is the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon, the eradication of the city uh, and the people. This is 40 years being described here. So from the 13th year of Josiah's reign to the end of Zedekiah's reign is 40 years. Josiah reigned 31 years, so 13th year means Jeremiah prophesied for 18 years under Josiah. But then the last five, or the last four kings after Josiah was Jehoahaz for three months, Jehoiakim for 11 years, Jehoiachin for three months, and Zedekiah for 11 years. So it's 311, 311, equaling 22 years, 18 plus 22. 40 years. That's a long time. And Jeremiah, uh, through this time frame, wasn't martyred or anything like that. And I would argue to you that that actually made his ministry as a prophet uh, harder in a lot of ways. So 40 years during the final period of time of this phase of Judah's existence. And I would argue, 
uh, that this is the most difficult time. Literally in all of Judah's history, all of Israel's existence, there's no other time in their existence that would have been more difficult to endure than this time, which again, I think is why this is the longest book of the Bible. And then verses 4 through 10, uh, so I'll read this here and then just make a brief comment about it. Now the word of Yahweh came to me saying, before I formed you in the innermost parts, I knew you. Before you came out from the womb, I set you apart. I have given you as a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord Yahweh, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. But Yahweh said to me, Do not say I am a youth because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh. Then Yahweh sent forth his hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to cause to perish and to pull up or to pull down, to build and to plant. So just briefly here, what we don't see is Jeremiah volunteering as a prophet. Jeremiah did not volunteer, didn't sign up for it, you know, on some sheets or, you know, do what Isaiah did and say, here, my Lord, send me. And he also didn't see any grand vision like Isaiah or Ezekiel. You know, Isaiah had that just super inspiring vision of the glory of God exalted in the temple and amazing, you know. And after seeing this, you know, in the scene of his sins being forgiven and all that, he's, you know, he's very inspired and motivated. Uh, Jeremiah didn't get anything like that. You know, Ezekiel saw this <laughs> crazy vision of a chariot with wheels within wheels and four cherubs with touching wings, seemingly these gigantic angelic beings, very fierce looking and mighty, fire and lightning and storm clouds and very crazy, you know, very incredible. Jeremiah did not get a vision like that. You know, God had to, in a sense, both choose Jeremiah and even persuade and pressure him. And uh, the book is unique in that Jeremiah talks a lot to God in this book, I think to demonstrate that God had to sustain Jeremiah. And God had to work really hard with Jeremiah to keep him going, which adds to the uh, lesson we're looking at. And then three, chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. So if you're not familiar with Josiah, he is literally one of the best kings who ever ruled in Judah. In fact, he may be the best king besides David who ever ruled in Judah's history. And you read about Josiah, and it sounds like an amazing time. You know, he's eradicating literally all of the idols in all the land of Israel. He's restoring the practice of the law and the temple and the priests. He made all the people make an oath and a covenant that they will only serve the Lord. You read that in the historical accounts and you think like, wow, this is, okay, so this is a good time. Jeremiah was not allowed to be disillusioned. What Jeremiah reveals in his 18 years in Josiah's reign is, yes, Josiah was a good and righteous man, but the people were hypocrites and nobody abandoned the influence of Manasseh, who was one of the worst kings who had come shortly before Josiah. Chapter 3, 6 through 11. <coughs> then Yahweh said to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I said, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I sent her away and given her a certificate of divorce. And this 
what he's, what he's meaning is northern Israel by this time had been taken into captivity by Assyria, destroyed by Assyria. But again, for verse 8, And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithful Israel, faithless Israel, I sent her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. So it was because of the lightness of her harlotry that she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in lying. Your translation may say deception, declares Yahweh. And Yahweh said to me, faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. And again, this is hard to describe, but... What I believe about this time frame under Josiah's reign is this actually would have been uniquely frustrating, uniquely discouraging, uniquely disappointing. You know, that it seems like so many good things are going on with Josiah the king, and yet Jeremiah has to enforce and even aggressively enforce. None of you have changed. God's wrath is still coming. You are still adulterers, and in your hearts, you are still idolaters. No one's sorry, no one's different, you're still the same people. And you imagine with Josiah doing these things, the people making a covenant with God, how bad Jeremiah would look. And like, who's this guy who's, you know, reigning on our parade as all of these great things are happening? Uh, And so Jeremiah, this would have been very frustrating, very disappointing, and we see this play out throughout the book. Um, He was also persecuted heavily during this time. Again, what appears in the historical accounts to be such a good time When you intimately zoom in with Jeremiah, that's not the case, not at all. Chapter 16, we're just going to very briefly touch on a couple things here. Turn to chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Uh, Something unusual that you may not know about Jeremiah is in chapter 16, verse 2, God actually forbid Jeremiah from getting married. (laughs) Because you could think like, well, maybe Jeremiah had some encouraging relationships to help him along. You know, maybe he had a, a good support system, even if that was just maybe one or two people. It wasn't the case. In verse 2, God told Jeremiah, you are not allowed to get married. <laughs> You're not allowed to have kids. And verses 3 through 4, he emphasizes it's because the place is so corrupt. You are not to choose a wife from this place because these are horribly corrupt people. You are not to raise children in this place. Well, in verse 5, God says you're not allowed to go to funeral homes. You're not allowed to comfort the people who are mourning because they're all wicked. You're not allowed to associate with them. In verse 8, God says, you're not allowed to rejoice with them. You're not allowed to have feasts with them. What God is saying is, Jeremiah, you're not allowed to have a wife. You're not allowed to have friends. You're not allowed to have any social associations with anybody in this land. Jeremiah was not allowed the luxury of having encouraging associations where he lived. You know, it's not wrong. Of course, not wrong. To want to be somewhere because that's where family is or that's where our loved ones are. Nothing about that is wrong and that can be a very good thing. But again, we might find ourselves in circumstances where we don't have that. Jeremiah didn't have that. And what Jeremiah did not need were those relationships to perform his ministry. And I want to, before I go on, I'm going to point out some hard things about Jeremiah. Hard things that have helped me. And I'm going to say them strongly and I... I don't mean for them to come off as sounding corrective or accusatory. Um, so just keep that in mind. I mean for all of this to just be encouraging as we consider the nature of Jeremiah's amazing example. The point I'm just trying to make 
is Jeremiah did not have the luxury of what we often consider needed in terms of helping us endure difficult situations. So the point is this, that Jeremiah endured the most excruciating slow burn of all of Israel's history. What we're going to see in this book, as we look through this here in a moment, is Jeremiah will often say, God, let's get on with this already. You keep saying you're going to punish the people. You keep telling me they're not going to listen to you. So hurry up and do it. What are we waiting for? And then God will tell Jeremiah, you're going to have to keep working longer. (laughs) This was an excruciating slow burn where Jeremiah is alone. All he has is the Lord. There are no encouraging relationships that he has. It's just him and it's God until the end. And it's amazing. All right, so let's look at Jeremiah's struggle. It's a big book. We're just going to look at a few passages, um, and I'll just try to keep some of the comments here fairly brief. But look at chapter 8, verse 18, verses 9 through verse 9, verse 2, and it's passages like this that popularly make Jeremiah known to be the weeping prophet, uh, which is a very true reputation. The idea is he was constantly pushed to the limits of despair without any earthly remedy. Chapter 8, verse 18. My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Behold the sound, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. Is Yahweh not in Zion? Is her king not within her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images, with foreign idols? Harvest is past, summer is ended, and we are not saved. This is Jeremiah again in verse 21. It's kind of like an interlude 19 and 20. Back to Jeremiah 21. For the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I mourn. Desolation has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people gone up? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go from them. For all of them are adulterers, a solemn assembly of treacherous men. So the hard thing is in verse 2, did Jeremiah want to stay in Judah? No, he longed to leave. Was that okay? I think absolutely that was okay. You know, that Jeremiah is just being very honest about the situation he's in. You know, it's so bad that if he had the option to leave, he would take it. But the amazing thing is we're going to see so much, so many lessons from Jeremiah's example in that he stays. Satan works through emotional suppression and superficial solutions. Something we see in Jeremiah, not only in his book, but in the book of Lamentations, is extreme emotional honesty. And it's not just some worldly sense of just talking out loud. You know, as we already saw, but as verse 3, you may notice verse 3 has a quote at its beginning because he talks and then God talks and it's just interlaced very seamlessly between Jeremiah talking and God talking. You know, the idea is God is filtering Jeremiah's emotions. Jeremiah is bringing these very difficult, very disparative emotions to God. And God has proven he can filter feelings that can weaken us spiritually. They can weaken our resolve, weaken our focus, weaken our motivation, weaken our sense of encouragement. I want to illustrate it this way. Eve and I, in our home, we have a water filter attached to our sink. Why do we have that? You know, is water bad? 
But can water unfiltered, you know, savanna water, where we were in Africa, Africa water, if you don't treat that water or filter it, can it sometimes make you sick? Actually weaken you and do bad to you? Yes. Does that mean water is bad? No. It just means you're aware that if I don't filter this, something bad could happen with this. <laughs> this could impact me negatively. Jeremiah's emotions here are not a bad thing. When we feel emotions that are as strong as this, it's not a bad thing. But those emotions, if they are not filtered through the Lord, if we don't learn the discipline of learning how to pour out our hearts to the Lord, to bring things to him, to compare things with his example, to compare things to his grace, to think deeply and richly about who he is, the kind of people he's called us to be, these strong emotions can weaken us or they can strengthen us. I'll tell you this, something very personal. Um, I'll say ahead of time, I mean this in a good way. Eva and I frequently talk about how hard the work is in Savannah. And we don't talk about that trying to discourage each other or trying to dwell on it like, woe is us, you know, that we're here and the work is hard. We talk about it to fortify our resolve, to deal with the reality of where we are and to encourage each other to deal with the reality of what it is to be here so that we're not, you know, inwardly, secretly kind of becoming discouraged about the reality of the situation. You know, I think we can acknowledge how hard things are and have that actually be something that fortifies us and gives us a greater motive and a greater resolve. That's what's happening here with Jeremiah. In chapter 8, 18 through 9-2, Jeremiah is not diminishing. He's not growing discouraged. He's not going to withdraw from Israel. He's not going to lose his motive to continue on his mission. He's not going to wither away in his emotions because he brings it to the Lord as honestly as he does and he filters it through the Lord. He finds greater strength, greater motive. Chapter 12, 1 through 6. So chapter 12, 1 through 6, uh, this has been one of the most important conversations to me that Jeremiah has with God in this book. Righteous are you, O Yahweh, when I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would speak matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked succeeded? Why are all those who deal in treachery complacent? You have planted them. They have also taken root. They grow. They have even produced fruit. You are near to their lips, but far from their inmost being. But you, O Yahweh, but you, O Yahweh, you know me, you see me, and you test my heart's attitude toward you. Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for a day of carnage. How long is the land to mourn and the plants of every field to dry up? Because of the evil of those who inhabit it, animals and birds have been swept away because men have said he will not see our latter ending. So stop there. You see what Jeremiah's struggle is? Now, I would argue that his struggle here is not from an absence of faith. Again, that he's not becoming bitter. He's not losing his motivation. You know, but Jeremiah knows that according to the law of Moses, God's own standard, he's dealing with the Jews, the people accountable to the law of Moses. And what God is saying, all of these people deserve punishment, and I am bringing that punishment, and they're not going to listen to me. And what Jeremiah is saying is, okay, God, you're having me Preach to the people that wrath is coming. Nobody's changing, but you are allowing them to feel complacent. You could intervene, and you are not. You've planted them, and they've taken root. You know, so the, 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 the point of the matter is, Jeremiah knows that God can act any moment. God has the power to act. 
God has promised he will act, but he's not acting. And so Jeremiah, to the people he's preaching to, looks like a joke. And God's inactivity is becoming the people's license to not believe him. And verse 4, this land that's supposed to be this inheritance for Israel is withering away. This land of milk and honey. You know, how are they ever going to return back here one day if the land just withers and dries up completely? You know, it's just getting worse and worse and nothing's getting better. Again, a hard thing about this. Did Jeremiah have the luxury of having an environment he enjoyed? (laughs) You know, I love coffee shops in Savannah. That is something I really enjoy here. I really love going to coffee shops and doing my studies there. There were no fun coffee shops for Jeremiah to go to. There weren't just fun sports activities for him to participate in. There weren't hobbies that could take his mind off of these things. There was nothing to give Jeremiah any relief or any joy. There was nothing Jeremiah can point to and say, yeah, my work as a prophet is bad, but at least I've got this hobby, you know, that I'm able to invest in. And again, like I keep saying, does that mean our hobbies are bad? The activities we enjoy are bad? It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is we've got to be careful that we don't think that we absolutely depend on those things in order for us to have a sense of mission and contentment and joy because Jeremiah did not have those things. Jeremiah was stuck in misery that was only going to get worse and worse. And look what God has to say about this. You know, God could have said, you know what, Jeremiah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've made things so hard. I'm sorry for where you are. There, there, little guy. You know, let's ease up on it. No, verse 5, if you've run with footmen, they have tired you out. And how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Even your brothers and the household of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Even they have called aloud after you. Do not believe them, although they may say nice things to you. You know, what I have on the board here is God had more strength to give Jeremiah than he realized was even possible. You know, in Jeremiah's mind, it's like, we've reached the limit, God. We cannot go any farther than this. You know, I don't know what you're doing, but it's got to stop here. What God has to say is, we're just getting started. You know, it seems like the uh, narrative shifts in chapter 20 to now getting to a, a new king. It seems like chapter 12 is still in the reign of Josiah, still in the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. What Jeremiah had to realize God was willing to exhaust the land for his people. You know, if God had to make the choice between letting the land go and letting his people go, what Jeremiah didn't realize is that was an easy choice to God. God's going to let the land go. And God's not going to let the land go easily. This is going to happen slowly. It's going to deteriorate from famine after famine as God uses it, uses it as a resource to try to reach his people. And in verse 5, what God needed Jeremiah to realize is things are going to get worse. Things are going to get harder. And he has more strength to give. You know, there are certain jobs where to be qualified to do it, to have the capacity to do it, requires training. I think what God is telling Jeremiah is, you know, I'm training you. I'm training your endurance. I'm training you to be able to endure more. You know, if Jeremiah can't endure this, he's not going to be qualified to handle how it's going to get after Josiah dies. After Josiah dies, the next kings are just going to be brazenly wicked. The people are going to go off the deep end much more than they did before. And so things are only going to get harder for Jeremiah. 
So verse 5, this is something I've reflected a lot on. There's so many times in my life where in preaching and in other things, I've said even in lessons recently, where you just have that temptation to give up, to quit. And I've had to really dig deep. Why? You know, what would God tell me right now? You know, if I really set myself side by side with examples like Jeremiah, you know, what would God tell me if I brought my complaint before him? You know, sometimes the answer isn't what we want to hear. I don't think this is what Jeremiah wanted to hear. But this is what Jeremiah needed to hear. You know, sometimes I think we just need to have the conviction. We need to toughen up. (laughs) I know that's hard. (laughs) I know that's not fun. I know that's a really hard answer. But what God is willing to sacrifice for people is more than what we understand. The idea is when we think our cup is exhausted, you know, I've given everything, I can't give any more. You know, I've gone as far as I can go. I can't handle any more. I can't handle not one more tragedy, not one more piece of bad news. You know, when we think our cup is exhausted, God can deepen it. God can pour more abundantly into that cup. You know, Jeremiah is a 52-chapter book, and here we are in chapter 12. Jeremiah keeps going. The idea is God was implying to Jeremiah he had much more strength to give him, and God did not fail Jeremiah. And there's a point in this book where Jeremiah never says anything like this ever again, ever. There's a point in this book where Jeremiah stops telling God, it's so hard, please stop, make it end. And Jeremiah just does his work again and again and again to the end. When we think our cup is exhausted, God can deepen it and he can pour more abundantly into it. When we think we're done, God has more to give. You know, God works harder than we do. God is willing to make more sacrifices than we are. When we give up, God keeps going. And oftentimes, again, what we need to do is we need to really dig deep and we need to remember who God is, what he's working for, what our mission is, and we need to be more resolved. And we need to stop feeling sorry for ourselves as Jeremiah was feeling sorry for himself here. Again, I know it's hard things, but they're very inspiring, I think, if we take it really personally. Chapter 17. This is a a longer section um, that I'd like to read here where Jeremiah hits a point where, again, he wants things to stop. But I think the way that God responds trained and transformed him. Jeremiah 17, verse 14. Heal me, O Yahweh, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they keep saying to me, where is the word of Yahweh? Let it come now. But as for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd after you, nor have I longed for the sickening day. You yourself know the utter- that the utterance of my lips was in your presence. Do not be a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of calamity. Let those who pursue me be put to shame. But as for me, let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring on them a day of calamity and crush them with twofold crushing. I know what Jeremiah is saying here sounds wrathful and bad, but it is good. You know, again, God was promising an incoming judgment, and Jeremiah is simply holding God accountable to his own promises. The people aren't changing. They're not listening. They're not repenting. And like chapter 12, things are only getting worse and worse. What are we waiting for? And Jeremiah is very self-aware. This is not going well for me. (laughs) You know, I'm in danger. I'm in danger of losing my soul. I'm in danger of dying because they're conspiring against me. Look what God tells Jeremiah to do in verse 19. 
And think about this as a response to Jeremiah. Thus, Yahweh said to me, go and stand in the public gate through which the kings of Judah come in and go out as well in all the gates of Jerusalem and say to them, listen to the word of Yahweh, kings of Judah and all Judah and all inhabitants of Jerusalem who come in through these gates. Thus says Yahweh, take care of yourselves and do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. You shall not bring a load out of your house on the Sabbath day nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ears, but stiffen their necks in order not to listen or receive discipline. But it will be, if you listen carefully to me, declares Yahweh, to bring no load in through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but to keep the Sabbath day holy by doing no work on it. Then there will come in through the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses. They and their princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city will be inhabited forever. And they will come in from the cities of Judah, from all around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from, from the Shephelah, from the hill country, from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings, sacrifices, grain offerings, and frankincense, and bringing sacrifices of thanksgiving to the house of Yahweh. Think about this. As Jeremiah is crying out to God, Let's end this. Bring on the people what you've been promising. In response, God says, I want you to go back. I want you to go in Jerusalem. And I want you to tell those people that you're calling out to me to destroy. And I want you to tell them that if they just keep the Sabbath right now, which by the way, God's argument with the people through Jeremiah has not been the Sabbath. It's been change your ways and your deeds, your idolatry hidden in your heart. And God makes this incredible compromise here. He tells Jeremiah, go and tell the people, if you just keep the Sabbath, I will heal you, I will bless you, and this city will remain forever and become better than it ever was before. How do you think that would impact Jeremiah? As you imagine him crying out to God as he did in those verses we read in 14 through 18. And then he walks to Jerusalem and he sees those people And he tells them, you can change right now. All you have to do is keep the Sabbath. Why would you not want to rest on Saturday and take a day off? It's mutually advantageous. God just bends over backwards to create new opportunities. I think the idea is this. Constantly reinvesting in people through hope is critical to endurance. You know, something I've thought a lot about in 1 Corinthians 13 when it's listing qualities of love, some of the most unusual and hardest to understand is how love hopes all things and believes all things. Have you thought about that? What does it mean to love someone and hope all things and believe all things? Not just love them as in I'm trying to do something to you and, you know, when I don't get the return I look for, it's just disappointment. Wow. You know, you imagine to Jeremiah... So much disappointment with God's people. Nothing but disappointment. But I think there's something about this where God just keeps assuring him, reinvest, go back, keep working with them, keep talking to them, keep preaching to them. And that reassurance, all they've got to do is keep the Sabbath and I will bless them. They can change. You know, again, there's this ironic tension where God tells Jeremiah they won't listen. But here in other places, God says, but they can listen. And I will bless them. 
The idea is, I think if we're struggling with despair, sometimes what we need to do is we need to reinvest in God's people. 2 Timothy chapter 2, you don't need to turn there. We're just focusing on Jeremiah. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he tells Timothy, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of the elect, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Timothy in 2 Timothy was suffering discouragement, and it seems like he was becoming demotivated as an evangelist. Paul tells Timothy, you need to reinvest. You've got to endure for God's people. Keep preaching the word to them. Hope all things, believe all things. You know, sometimes what we need to do is we need to think about people differently. And if we could just change our attitude about people, and I don't just mean brethren, I mean people in the world and have a clearer sense of mission. You're here in Savannah because people need to be saved. You're here in Savannah because people are going to hell here. And we are lights in this community and God needs us here, every single one. Is it hard here? Absolutely. But is God just looking for a smidgen of change in someone's heart to connect them to a Christian who knows the truth? Absolutely. Is that worth enduring for? Is that worth having a hard life for? When you get to heaven, if there's someone like Paul Johnson there, because you are willing to endure a hard place, is it worth it? Because your family's not here. Because you don't have activities you enjoy enough here. There could be someone in heaven who's there because you toughened up and you loved people. I don't mean for that to sound accusatory. <laughs> I just mean for this lesson to be very encouraging. As we look at this was Jeremiah's life. This is how he was trained to think. And he's one of the greatest examples of a prophet. Chapter 31. Uh, 16 through 26. Chapter 31, 16 through 26. Again, a a longer section. And really what the emphasis will be is just verse 26, but how God leads into that is very important. This is where a lot of new covenant things are being said. And just the impact this has on Jeremiah, there's just this, this little verse that is so important. Verse 16. Thus says Yahweh, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares Yahweh. And they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares Yahweh. And your children will return to their own territory. I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained calf. Cause me to return that I may return, for you are Yahweh my God. For after I turned away, I repented. And after I was instructed, I slapped my thigh. I was ashamed and also dishonored because I I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my inmost being yearns for him. I will surely have compassion on him, declares Yahweh. Set up road marks for yourself. Place for yourself guideposts. Set your heart to the highway, the way by which you went. Return, O virgin of Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? For Yahweh has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. A weird statement, but I think it just means God's bride will pursue him, which I think is what we see in Jesus and with the church. 23, thus Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, once again they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities when I return their fortunes. 
Yahweh bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities will be inhabited, will inhabit it together, the farmer and they who go about with flocks. For I satisfy the weary soul and fill up every soul who wastes away. Verse 26. This is Jeremiah speaking here. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Really strange verse, verse 26. Like, why is it telling us Jeremiah woke up and had a good sleep? (laughs) And I think it's the idea that Jeremiah was genuinely and very practically encouraged by this. You know, Jeremiah had such a hard life, filled with so much despair. And with all of these promises of hope here, what Jeremiah is saying, this gave me the refreshment that I needed. You know, so in chapter 17, we need to be pushed to put more hope in people, not because of who they are, but because of what God can do, how much God loves people, how much God bends over backwards to seek opportunities to reach people. And in chapter 31, we need to find encouragement from the guarantee of what God is going to do and what he was going to do here. Here, Jeremiah is seeing behind the veil, the big picture of God's promises. And he was dwelling on them in a way that was critical to his endurance. You know, God is assuring Jeremiah, your work is not in vain. And mind you, Jeremiah would not see the real result of what he's being promised here. I'll tell you what this looks like uh, for me, for Eve and I, in a personal way, if you'll bear with me. Um, When I was in Africa, I had a really strange conversation with Dan. We were talking about what is biblical success which was encouraging, but he asked a question no one's ever asked me before. Um, He asked if everybody moved away while you were in Savannah and the church had to disband completely, would you consider that to be a failure? And when he asked that, my immediate thought was, yeah. (laughs) You know, if the church disbanded while I was in Savannah, yeah, I would feel that that's a failure. And his, his point was in response, no. No, it would not be a failure. And his point was that in God's view of what success is, you know, if you've been trying to do the right thing, if you've been trying to do the work of an evangelist to encourage the brethren, if you've been trying to reach the community, but you're just not able to make more connections with people in the community, and if people leave edified and spiritually stronger than when they came to that church, in God's eyes, is that a failure or is that a success? You know, Jerusalem would fall while Jeremiah was there. After he's preaching for 40 years, relentlessly pleading with the people as God is exhausting every option, Jeremiah lived in Jerusalem when it disbanded. Was his ministry a failure? Did he fail as a prophet? Was that not a success? And how this also works with how God has just really helped me think is if what we're doing here is for another generation to have more stability in this area, Or maybe God is laying the groundwork for something later. Or maybe it is that just people who come here, maybe this is just a stop for a while as people move in and move out. Is that okay? I would say yes. That if those who are here are trying to do the right thing, and if we are trying to fortify our faith, that is not a failure, but that is a success. Even beyond all of that, 1 Corinthians 15 in talking about the reality and the guarantee of the resurrection and the bigger picture, not just what God is able to do temporally, but what he is doing eternally. 
Paul assured the Corinthians that we can be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. That at the very least, but also at the very most, God will ensure that every sacrifice we make is rewarded and recompensed in the resurrection. When Jeremiah dwelt on the big picture, it refreshed him and encouraged him. What we need is to focus less on the immediacy of reward. You know, things aren't fun enough now. They're not good enough now. They're not encouraging enough now. You know, when we struggle with those thoughts, the reality of those thoughts, what we really need to do is not ignore it as if that's not real, right? Jeremiah's hard time was real, but that needs to be balanced with maybe a greater reality of how God in his power is able to redeem the temporary for something greater and more eternal. Finally, chapter 40, verses 1 through 6, and this will be the last passage. Uh, This, to me, is the greatest hidden gem in Jeremiah. Um, And this has impacted me as, as much, if not more, than any of these other passages. 41 through 6. Jerusalem's been destroyed. Babylon's done it. Chapter 39 is the review of the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, So chapter 40 is kind of like a time beyond that. Chapter 40, verse 1, The word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh after Nebuzaradan, captain of the bodyguard, had released him from Ramah, where he had taken him bound in chains among all the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. And the captain of the bodyguard had taken Jeremiah and said to him, Yahweh your God promised this calamity against this place, and Yahweh has brought it on and done just as he promised. Because you people sinned against Yahweh and did not listen to his voice, therefore this thing has happened to you. So now behold, I am freeing you today from the chains which are on your hands. If it is good in your eyes to come with me to Babylon, come along, and I will set my eyes to look after you. But if it is displeasing in your eyes to come with me to Babylon, never mind. Look, the whole land is before you. Go wherever it seems good and right in your eyes to go. But as Jeremiah had not yet set out to return, he said, Return then to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the cities of Judah, and stay with him among the people, or else go anywhere that is right in your eyes to go. Point of this is, in the end, you know, we saw in chapter 8, Jeremiah wanted to get away, get out of town. In chapter 40, this is at the end of all of this work Jeremiah has done now, 40 years. What happens in these few verses is the officer of Babylon says, you're free. Go wherever you want. We'll bless you. We'll take care of you. There's exiles in Babylon. Guaranteed in Babylon, Jeremiah would have a good welcome among the Jewish people. You know, he says, you can go wherever you want. What does Jeremiah choose to do? Stay with the people who had been persecuting him, hurting him, discouraging him. And so the officer of Babylon says, fine, go back then to Judah, to the person that God is, or that Nebuchadnezzar has put in charge of the exiles there. And they go to Egypt. Jeremiah goes with them. And what does Jeremiah do? He just keeps preaching to them. In the, in the end, Jeremiah chose the harder path, even when the option was given to him to take an easier way out and for relief. Now again, I'm pointing this out. It's not that we can't choose to be somewhere that's easier. None of those things are wrong. But when we are in a hard place, and it doesn't have things that bring us worldly joy, when we struggle to find encouragement from our environment, or maybe even from one another, this is a small group. It's hard to even numerically give each other what's emotionally needed to stay encouraged. But wow, 
Jeremiah had been so trained by God, he became a masterpiece of his handiwork. Jeremiah chose to stay with the people who had made his life miserable for 40 years, knowing that he was their access to God's mercy. And again, as they go to Egypt, and Jeremiah tells them, don't go to Egypt, God will judge you there. They go to Egypt. And in Egypt, Jeremiah tells them, God's going to judge you here. And I think Jeremiah, again, he's choosing to be their avenue to God's mercy. This has been a very long lesson. I'll try to wrap it up here. The idea is, as good as this example is, this is just a thread of Jesus coming into the world. You know, did Jesus come into the world thinking, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff there. (laughs) I think I'm really going to enjoy my time coming into the world. That's not Jesus's mission. It wasn't his mentality about coming into the world. Jesus came here because it was going to be hard. He fortified himself through his ministry to endure hardship. He was mission-minded. And I want you to think, having Jesus as our example, having access to salvation in God's spirit, if God could do this with Jeremiah, who only knew a shadowy sense of what God was doing, who didn't have a local church of people who were trying to do the right thing, If God could do this with Jeremiah and teach Jeremiah these things, how much more can he do for you and me through Jesus? Listen, we've got to raise the bar. We've got to raise the bar for ourselves. It's not so easy to exhort each other in these ways. I think there just has to be a sense of personal conviction. We really raise the bar. And when we get weary or tired, we really try to reflect on biblical examples and we dig deeper. I know that's hard. I know that's not an easy answer to how hard Savannah can be. But we've got to consider these things, and it will be a blessing. If you'll pray with me, we'll end the lesson here.